And welcome back to Vonication, the podcast dedicated to making sure therapists everywhere have job security. I'm your host, Jack, and thank you guys so very much for tuning in today. We're going to be talking about an animal that I always forget is actually real. It's the narwhal, although I've never actually seen one in real life, so it's very possible that they're not real. Maybe big biology made them up in some sort of elaborate conspiracy theory involving the Earth being flat, uh, 5G, and Bigfoot. Fuck it. I'm sure I'll follow up with that in a future episode if I don't get assassinated for being a whistleblower first. We'll see. In the meantime, we'll continue the episode under the presumption that narwhals are real. I hope you can hear my air quotes. So, narwhal, scientific name Monodon monocerus, which translates back into English as one tooth, one horn. I bet none of you guys are surprised by that name. Some scientists are so literal and it's so disappointing. Just missed opportunities. The regular name of the narwhal, however, was chosen by Carl Linnaeus when he described it in his book in the mid-1700s. He took inspiration from the old Norse word nar, which means corpse, and is incidentally so much more metal than that whale with a tooth horn. He chose that name because the grayish, blotted coloring of the narwhal, in addition to its habit of hanging out perfectly still at the surface of the water, reminded him of the bodies of drowned sailors floating in the ocean. (laughs) Metal. It's so fucking morbid, but I love it. (laughs) The other half of the narwhal's name, wall, comes from the fact that it's a whale. Along with the beluga whale, those two species make up the two living members of the family Monodontidae, which is a little strange because the way that taxonomy works is that the smallest section is species, of course. That separates things like the hunter and white bat from the flying fox bat, even though obviously they're both bats. After species, it branches out to genus, and then family, then order, and so on. So for narwhals and beluga whales, by saying that they're the only two species in the monodontidae family, it sounds like they just skipped right past genus, but in truth, each are actually the only members of their own genus as well. There used to be more, but they've gone extinct, unfortunately. That's the story with too many animals. But what is not unfortunate, though, is that despite being the kind of weird, awesome, strange animal that you would expect to be super endangered, Narwhals are actually classified as least concerned by the IUCN. Most recent estimates put their numbers somewhere between 100 and 200,000, which makes the fact that I've never seen one in real life all the more suspicious. Never mind the fact that I've never been to the Russian Arctic, Northern Canada, Greenland, Iceland, that's besides the point. I've never seen one, that is sketch. And just as a side note to make your day even better, beluga whales are also classified as least concerned, excluding a few small subpopulations, but overall, Two weird fucking animals that are awesome and are not endangered. It's fucking refreshing to be talking about that. Because both of them seem like the kind of animal that would be hunted into oblivion. So I'm just, I'm happy to be able to say that to you guys. So rather than talking about how they're all dying, because they're not, let's get back to talking about narwhals. Starting with their most well-known feature, the horn. Slash tooth. Because it's a tooth. Specifically, a canine tooth. Only males grow this tooth horn because, obviously, that's exactly what would happen. (laughs) It's basically the narwhal equivalent to a giant jacked-up truck. It's the same outward message screaming, please, please have sex with me. I promise I have a super-duper big penis. The tooth can grow up to 10 feet or 3 meters long if you, you know, use the non-imperial system. What's it called? The metric system. The the system that we should all be using. (laughs) But anyways... 
10 feet, three meters, that's really long. So I'll admit that I actually am impressed, significantly more impressed than a giant truck, honestly. If you came up to me with a giant horn sticking on your face, it was 10 feet long, I might sleep with you. That's never happened to me before. I don't know what I would do. Anyways, some males actually take their insecurity to a higher level and actually grow two horns. I don't know if that's supposed to mean that they have two super duper big penises or one penis that's double in length, but considering it's only about one in 500 males, I suppose that's rare enough that I would be proud of it too. What's curious though, is that about 15% of female narwhals will also end up growing a horn. <laughs> Although it's usually smaller than the average male's horn. And there actually was even a female narwhal collected in 1684 that had two horns. <laughs> You can see her skull in Hamburg if you're ever in the area. That's in Germany if you're not familiar with geography. I am not. You could tell me that Alaska was located in Africa and I would believe you. So in keeping with my previous metaphor with the truck and the penis, I'm not sure if that would be a female with big dick energy or a female with not like other girl syndrome. I know that's not technically a real syndrome, but like, isn't it though? If I'm being honest with myself, I actually, I know I'm shitting on them, but I would love to have two horns sticking out of my face to spear people with. Particularly the people I see in the grocery store smugly walking around a bunch of food without masks on. Fuck you guys. Side note real quick, if you're an anti-masker or an anti-vaxxer, you're at the wrong podcast. This is a biology podcast, so it's pro-science, not pro-conspiracy theories. Excluding, of course, very obviously, my own conspiracy theory regarding Russians inventing narwhals in response to climate change threatening to explode flat earth. It's a working theory, but it's more valid in anti-maskers slash vaxxers. Back to the horn, which I'm deliberately mislabeling by the way. Apparently it's called a tusk, but I refuse. It's a fucking horn. Look at it. It grows right out of its face. Since it's a tooth, at first I wondered if it grew straight, kind of protruding from its mouth opening. Ugh, this is a science podcast. I should use science words. I assumed it would protrude from its oral orifice. <laughs> I, I didn't like that. That made me uncomfortable. I'm going to say mouth opening. <laughs> Regardless, think like a human mouth. Say one of your front teeth grew super long and pointed forward instead of down. It would still come out of your mouth and your lips would kind of wrap around it. Not so with a narwhal. A narwhal's tooth horn protrudes out of its face, not its mouth. So if it were human, it would be kind of closer to protruding out of your nostril and your mouth would still be like a separate area. Of course, that does not change my stance on having a horn of my own. So what is this horn even for, aside from, you know, the gnarly aesthetics? Well, like I mentioned earlier, it's for communication. One communique is obviously, I have the best penis. But that's not all the messaging that it's capable of. It's actually somehow considered a sensory organ, which throws me off all the time because when I think of organs, I think of kidneys. But I always forget that organ is actually a really vague term, but... Anyways, it's a sensory organ with millions of nerve endings that tell the narwhal's brain information about the seawater it's in and the chemistry makeup. Male narwhals have been observed rubbing their tusks together, and male listeners, I know exactly what you're thinking, and yes. Naturally, it was initially assumed to be a very primitive act. Early scientists believed it was an act of aggression between males, posturing and telling other males, I am the biggest dude in this ocean, don't fuck with me. On one hand, I can't understand why they would think that. The horn looks like a weapon, and while they do use it sometimes to thwack and stun prey, they mostly hunt by sucking in super hard, like a vacuum. Honestly, if they relied on their horns more, then the females wouldn't really survive since they don't have the horns. Excluding 15%. You guys know what I mean. So researchers now believe that, well, considering the tusks are sensory organs that communicate information about the water, it's most likely that rubbing tusks is a method of communication. 
and giving or receiving information about the chemistry of the water traveled in by each narwhal. That's rubbing tusks. Sorry, horns. Tooth. Teeth. Tooth? Tooths. I tried to say tooth. Anyways, I gotta stop. So it's so much more sophisticated. Early scientists really fucking thought that animals were just dumb shells of nothing but survival functions. Naturally, tusks aren't the only method of communication. Narwhals are whales, and whales are well known for things like songs. Take a listen. It's beautiful, right? It's absolutely enchanting. It's no wonder that some people put on whale calls to sleep to. But unfortunately, I'm completely fucking with you guys. That is not a whale call. That is the call of Lugia, a legendary second generation Pokemon, as seen in the movie Pokemon 2000, which I watched recently. That's why I put that in there. You can catch them in Pokemon Silver. The truth is, narwhals don't actually have songs. If you combine the family Monodontidae with the dolphin family, Delphinidae, and the porpoise family, Fosoenidae, God, I probably fucked that up. <laughs> Anyways, all three of them comprise the super family, Delphinoidea, which all most likely have a single common ancestor. I'm trying to think of the term. Vocabulary time. Monophyletic? I think it's monophyletic. Don't quote me. Anyways, considering dolphins and porpoises don't have songs, it kind of makes sense that narwhals and belugas don't either. They all have similar vocalizations, like, you know, clicks and whistles and knocks and bangs, all done by manipulating air movement near their blowhole. It's the same method they use to produce the echolocation clicking. If you've ever heard dolphin clicking before, this will sound familiar. The whistles you heard were calls to other narwhals, and then the clicks were the echolocation clicks I was talking about. And then that buzzing at the end, I'm honestly not sure what it means, but apparently they do that buzzing sound when they're very, very close to their prey. Maybe it's to stun their prey somehow, or maybe it's a different kind of more sophisticated echolocation. Maybe it's a signal to other narwhals about food, but there's so much to learn. I'm not sure. I wish I had all the answers, but I'm glad that there are questions that can still be answered. I did not phrase that eloquently, but I hope you guys got the sentiment. <laughs> Anyways, if narwhals were actually capable of singing, I think every millennial in the world already knows what their song would sound like. Get ready to cringe. Narwhals, narwhals, swimming in the ocean. If that made you unsubscribe from my podcast, leave a one-star review. Honestly, I get it. That is completely fair. I hate me too. Luckily, I haven't done an episode on badgers yet, so I could do the same joke for a future episode for all of the listeners I won't have left after this shit. <laughs> so now that I'm speaking to no one, I suppose I'll get back to talking about narwhal biology. Unfortunately, most of the reproductive habits I can tell you about isn't in specifics. We know that the tusk tooth horn thing is used in sexual selection. The biggest tusk obviously belonging to the sexiest men. That was actually confirmed by researcher Zachary Graham by studying tusk size compared to fluke size. Fluke is just a fancy name for a tail. It's a tale. Stripping his research down into real English words, he determined that tusk growth was disproportionate to fluke growth, or tail growth, in body size. Basically, secondary sex characteristics like peacock feathers, for example, which have no function on actual sex, but convey sexual viability, tend to grow at a different rate or scale than normal body parts. 
Graham proposed that if the tusk had no sexual function, then it would grow at a similar rate to a body part not likely to be a secondary sex characteristic, so he chose a tail. And it would likely grow at a similar rate amongst individuals of the same age. So even more dumbed down, if it doesn't have to do with sex, it won't change drastically between different individuals. So while looking at different individuals, he determined that fluke size and growth rate varied very, very little, while tusk size varied greatly. In most animals, these kinds of secondary sex characteristics are linked to nutrients and body conditions because only the strongest, biggest, and often most well-fed individuals can afford the extra energy spent to grow these large body parts. So mama comes up on a dude with a big tusk and goes, damn, he has extra energy expenditure. What a fucking man. And no human males in the audience, that does not translate to eating more food will make your dick grow. Moving on. More research still needs to be done on narwhals to determine the specifics of getting nasty, of course. Their habitat is obviously covered in a lot of ice, so aerial drones trying to spy on them doesn't really work. Aquatic drones are a possibility, but researchers need funding and shit like that. It's the bane of every scientist in the world. What we do know about their sex is that females have a 14-month gestation, they give birth every three years, and are likely sexually active until they're probably 70. And most interestingly, they can have sex with beluga whales. <laughs> Interspecies breeding. Probably unethical in most capacities, but hybrid animals are fucking cool. Now, I'm not saying that this happens frequently by any means, but in 1990, a skull of a whale that does not exist was discovered in West Greenland. Marine zoologists took a look, and despite it being a skull of a non-existent species, they explained that the traits of the skull appeared to share similarities between belugas and narwhals, and it actually matched earlier hypotheses of what a theoretic beluga-narwhal hybrid would look like. And then, naturally, science advances, we do a DNA and isotopic analysis on the skull, and boom! Confirmation! It's a hybrid species. This does seem to be a rare event, like I said, and as far as I know, there aren't pods of naralugas swimming around Greenland, although that would go beautifully with my developing conspiracy theory. I might start saying that that's true. So when this happens, it appears that the narwhal mother and beluga father combination is more frequent with them, although I guess that frequent is the wrong word for a rare event. Honestly, there's been so little research done on these and so few specimens that scientists haven't been able to determine if they were even able to breed and then branch off into their own brand new species, but the research that has been done on the skulls show that they had this weird tooth structure, which suggests that they hunted for food on the seabed. And that's weird because neither narwhals nor belugas regularly hunt on the seabed. So not sure why that happened. But I am going to extrapolate a little bit on my own here. My guess would be that since narwhals and belugas are so closely related to the point where they're able to interbreed, their sex is probably fairly similar. But again, this is a guess. But if that's the case, it would be fairly standard sex. Since we do have quite a few belugas in captivity, we've obviously seen how they reproduce. Belugas don't have very exciting sex, with the hypodermic insemination or urinating on shed exoskeletons or whatever else I end up talking about in this podcast but they do have really interesting parent dynamics. Maybe I'll do a mini chode on them, or maybe a full episode. We'll see. I like belugas and narwhals. Actually, I just like animals, let's be real. <laughs> Anyways, with that, I leave you. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode, and I hope listening to it brings you as much joy as I get from reading about it. If it did bring you joy, you should consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes. It really does help out more than you'd think. Or, you know what, leave a one-star review if you really fucking hated that song earlier. Two options. 
In the meantime, I upload new episodes every other hump day. So I'll be back again in two weeks. Bye.